Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Chip Conley. Chip is an entrepreneur, the author of many books, including Wisdom at Work, and is the co-founder of the Modern Elder Academy. During our conversation, Chip talks about founding, running, and eventually selling Joie de Vivre Hospitality, mentoring both California Governor Gavin Newsom and Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky, and the role of elders in contemporary and ancestral societies. Chip aims to change the purpose, the usefulness, and the cultural esteem of one of our most untapped resources, our elders. In a society obsessed with youth and fearful of aging, our elders have an abundance of the quality most apt to avoid mistakes, improve decision-making, and increase overall health and wellness. Wisdom. If Chip is successful in propelling the growth and the influence of his modern elder academy and its offshoot, regenerative communities, an attempt to disrupt, innovate, and improve senior living, I believe he and his team will help us improve as a culture, provide meaning to people as they age, and mature our civilization. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Chip Conley. Chip, as you know, I have been uh, looking forward to talking to you, trying to talk to you for quite some time. It is really an honor to do this. It's great to meet you. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you, Dan. Um, I wish I was there in Austin with you. <laughs> Likewise. Um, so I want to start by getting the story for you as to how it makes sense from your perspective that a, a hotelier, somebody who had been very successful in business in California, ends up getting very interested in wisdom, in the role of elders in our society. Roughly speaking, how do you make sense of that journey for you? <laughs> Well, it is a weird journey going from boy wonder to modern health. <laughs> let me unpack it a little bit. So my career started, uh, my entrepreneurship career started at age 26 when I started a boutique hotel company in San Francisco called Joie de Vivre. And it grew into the second largest boutique hotel company in the US with 52 hotels, all of them in California, um, each with its own name. So it was a, the umbrella brand was Joie de Vivre, but each hotel had uh, its own brand and separate name, all of them boutique. Long story short is that was lovely for 22 years. In the last two years, I hated it and I didn't want to do it anymore. And it was a very strange feeling to have grown this thing. And, and then I really realized I didn't, I didn't want to do what I had done. And I'd sort of set it up as if like, okay, well, I'm the poster child for the company. How do I, how do I, how do I, as the, as the founder and CEO and funder of the business, how do I walk away from it in the Great Recession? So hmm. a, lot of, a lot of things happened, including a flatline experience where I died uh, nine times in 90 minutes. Um, we can come back to that if you want. And um, I, I figured out a way to, to extricate myself from this business that had consumed me. And um, and then I was like, okay, well, what's next for me? And I was in my early 50s at that point. And I got a call from the Airbnb founders uh, 10 years ago when it was a tiny little tech startup in San Francisco. And they said, we want, would love your help to 
become a global hospitality giant and you know, brand. And it's like, okay, let me help you. I think it's a terrible idea. Yeah. Like who's going to stay in each other's homes? Like that's, that's well, like, well, that doesn't make any sense, but I, I started helping them. And it was, a, it was a seven and a half year journey while I was there. Long story short is they started calling me the modern elder, mm-hmm. uh, not just the founders, but, but people in the company did. And, and at first I was like, I don't want to be a modern elder. That sounds like AARP's magazine. Um, but no, they didn't say modern elderly. They said modern elder. And what they said is, Chip, a modern elder is someone who's as curious as they are wise. And I was like, well, that sounds pretty good. I like curiosity and wisdom, right? Alchemy. And and the truth was I was 52 and, and the average age in the company was 26. So elder is a relative term. And when you're twice the age of the people you're surrounded by, you probably are an elder and it's a label that you want to live up to in the sense that there's, there can be, there has been historically reverence attached to it. I don't have zero, I have zero desire for reverence, but what I do have some desire for is relevance. Mm. And that was really what I brought to, to Airbnb. And ultimately that experience led me to creating the modern elder Academy, which is the the world's first midlife wisdom school. Yeah. And I want to I want to talk to you about that word wisdom. And I've done a variety of different shows on this podcast that have kind of circled around that idea and how you know, from my vantage point, wisdom is one of the most crucial qualities you can have. It's linked in my mind very closely to having good judgment, and it doesn't seem to have the relevance or reverence in at least the U.S. that. Uh, in my mind, I think it probably should be. You know, you start the book with a quote from Cicero, and I, yeah, I, I, I went to high that. school with the, I went to high school with that guy, <laughs> an old friend. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, when somebody asks you about that word wisdom, and you give a you know a, a, some definitions in in your mind about what that word means to you, how do you make sense of wisdom? What what does that word mean? Yeah, I, I have a new definition. So you're you're referring to my book, Wisdom at Work: The Making of a Modern Elder, which is my uh, fifth book. And um, my new definition of wisdom, which is not in that book, maybe mm-hmm. it will be in the paperback version when it comes out, <laughs> uh, is metabolized experience that leads to distilled compassion. And for the longest time, I really thought of wisdom as metabolized experience. And, and I, I, hadn't, I hadn't really articulated that in the, in the book, but I, that's how I thought of it. And then one day, someone who's very wise and a philosophy professor said to me, Chip, you know, metabolized experience isn't enough because it has to have a social good attached to it mm. because wisdom is generally a social good. Um, it doesn't, it's not something that is done for dastardly purposes. Um, or for selfish purposes, maybe even. So I ultimately led to this idea of, okay, metabolized experience. How do you make sense of your lessons in life in such a way that you can help share these lessons in a compassionate way, distilled for the person directly in front of you? Mm. So the, the distilled compassion speaks to the idea that Compassion that's universal is beautiful, but it also isn't necessarily what is needed at this very moment from the person in front of you. Mm. And so metabolized experience leads to distilled compassion. That to me is wisdom. Now, the wisdom, why is wisdom important? You're right. It's not, it's generally what's what's been the predominant learning phenomena of the last hundred years is has been all about knowledge. Mm. You know, you accumulate knowledge. 
Uh, Peter Drucker coined the term knowledge workers in 1959, no less, a year before I was born. And we are in a we're awash in knowledge, and all of that damn knowledge is on this little machine. Yeah. <laughs> your your smartphone. And Google has organized the world's knowledge. So we have over emphasized knowledge and underemphasized wisdom. So we're awash in knowledge, but we're scarce when it comes to how do we develop um, a muscle around wisdom. And I'm open to talking about that in detail with you because, of course, starting the world's first midlife wisdom school, it's a topic that is very germane to what we do. Yeah. And I know in doing you know research for this conversation, and I, I think there's a lot of truth in this just general idea that a lot of wisdom comes through suffering in people's lives and that you know, people often need to learn the hard way and that having a wise elder who has been through a lot can really help people avoid some of the landmines of life. And, you know, I have to ask you this because I've, I've got you here about, you know, the major elements of the suffering that you've experienced. And I, I know there are many, you already mentioned one about your, your near death experience where you flatlined multiple times, I think in St. Louis. Yeah. When you think about you know, the wisdom that you feel confident that you have obtained in your own life, do you think it's linked directly to being a closeted gay man in the eighties? Um, you know, having extremely difficult times in in the business world. What are the key elements in your life that you know you kind of look to as being character building moments? Right. I've heard you say this in prior interviews as well that it, the the moments of highest difficulty often are the, in retrospect, kind of the crucible in which people's characters are really formed. No doubt about it. Um, yeah, you know, I I I have been the other many times in my life. The other yeah. being sort of like not the dominant paradigm, even though I'm a white guy. But <laughs> I went to high school in, in an inner city high school, Snoop Dogg's high school in hmm. LA and actually in Long Beach, and also known in the in the hip hop world as LBC. And so I was a white guy in a predominantly non-white school and I loved it. And it helped me to, it taught me a lot about what does it mean to be the other. Um, then I went to college at Stanford and played water polo at Stanford, was in a fraternity at Stanford, had a girlfriend at Stanford, a very serious girlfriend, um, was, I wasn't, I, you know, to say closeted at that point was like, I, I think I wasn't even aware, to be honest mm. with you. I was aware enough, but not yeah. completely doing nothing about it. And it wasn't until my, between my first and second year of business school, I went straight from Stanford undergrad into Stanford business school. I worked for Morgan Stanley in New York. And that's the summer of 1983 that I, I came out. And, um, so now I was the other again, um, uh, in, in my business school as someone who in my second year of business school came out publicly in my business school class and, and yeah, then went to work for a real estate developer that was generally not a particularly fertile zone for gay people. I was a very, uh, much as much culture and I did my best there. And then ultimately I started my own company. And when I started a company at age 26, I was a gay CEO and an out gay CEO mm. at a time where like in the mid 1980s, like that was pretty rare. Yeah. So I would just say, um, to back to your original premise here, 
was there, and, and then, yeah, later I was again, an other, when I was the, you know, old guy among the millennials in the land of the millennials at, at Airbnb. So I've appreciated being the other a lot. I, I, I don't know if there's stuff. I don't know if there's a lot of suffering there, mm. but what there has been is the sense of like, what does it mean to not be in power based upon my demographic? But instead I had to be in a position where I could understand other people, be culturally curious enough, maybe empathetic and compassionate enough to know what it's, know what it's like to be the other. So I would say, yes, I've skinned my knees, my knees, I've broken my nose. I'm talking about figuratively, not literally. And my greatest lessons have come from my, some of my deepest pain, Mm. but I actually think it's not just the pain that has created the lesson. It is, it's been the empathy and the compassion that has been there as well. And, you know, I think it's just made me a better leader ultimately. Uh, And, you know, my life has really been about leadership and I was student body president of that, you know, inner city high school as the white boy. And um, so, yeah, and I was captain of our water polo team that became, and it was an all American on that team. So there was a lot of history for me of being a leader and I do believe a leader is a vulnerable visionary if they got it right. And it means that there's like this nice mixture of <clears throat> the vision that magnetizes people toward you and the vulnerability that allows people to be human in their workplace. Yeah. This is a subject I know that you you talk about in Wisdom at Work as well, which is the you know, really ancestral role of in human cultures for elders and you know as i was getting more familiar with the work that you're doing in the modern elder academy i mean to me it seems like this is an attempt to potentially have a bit of a paradigm shift in our in our country about the way elders are are viewed and i want to give a little bit of time to talk to you about what we know about you know, ev- from an evolutionary perspective, from a tribal perspective, mm-hmm. what the role of the of of the el- of elders typically had been in human civilization, and maybe I'll just put that to you. It it seems yeah. like many of the mistakes that we make, whether it be foreign policy, you've said this before about you know you've worked extensively in the startup world that a lot of the the problems of initially successful startups end up being hubris. And that hubris is also found in other aspects of you know American recent history. Um, maybe we can just start with the what we know about what the role of the elder has been in you know tribal evolutionary history for for human beings in general. Yeah, let's go back to tr- indigenous tribal. You know, the, the the idea of an elder in the tribe was you know usually male, and but not always. Uh, some tribes did not exclusively of male um, elders. Bottom line was the elder was the one who sort of knew the, the, the spoken word traditions, because frankly, in many indigenous societies, that's all it was. Mm. You didn't have books. You didn't have, so, so it was carried those traditions and those, that history was carried through voice um, people saying things and in language so that was what there was there was some of the reason that elders were important was because they passed on those traditions and and those experiences um 
the metabolized experiences. Mm. You know, you go into farming and agriculture um, cultures, you know, up till the late 1980s, 1890s, where the U.S. was an agrarian society. and, And having farm wisdom, land wisdom, was really valuable. You know, the farmer's almanac was really just like an elder almanac. It was like an elder farmer's almanac saying, here's the things to know mm-hmm. about farming and and um, and knowing like just the weather, you know, being able to read the weather. These are things you get better at as you get older, uh, especially if you're a farmer. And long story short is there's a huge amount of value in the elder uh, and, and, you know, in in the 18th century and the 19th century, sometimes uh, legislators and lawyers wore white wigs to make them look older Yeah, because there was an element like that, that elder wisdom was valuable. So long story short is that's where we were, but then we go, you know, let's fast forward to the 20th century and early in the 20th century and late 19th century, the industrial revolution came along and we moved from the, the gentleman farmer who who could be in the fields up till assuming they live till in their 70s and at some point they are less in the fields but they're directing people um to factory workers and all of a sudden we moved from you know sort of the 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 land wisdom to brawn and it was like you know who could be in a factory who could actually move things around and it was, and it, physical labor became an even bigger part of it. Not to say that farming doesn't have a lot of physical labor as well, but you know, it, it actually had machinery is that did, did some of the work. So you get to this industrial era that is the first half of the 20th century, and and you have that as well as you have the Great Depression. The Great Depression led to a 25 percent unemployment rate, mm-hmm. and uh, FDR's brain brainstorm of like, okay, let's create social security was partly out of measure of just like compassion for older people, but it was also a way to get the older people out of the workforce in order. I mean, the workforce was, had shrunk. So in order to actually get young people jobs, you needed to have older people retire and therefore you needed to create a safety net. So the combination of going industrial as a society, and then the Great Depression leading to Social Security and pensions becoming more predominant led to the idea that retirement, which technically speaking is about literally going out to pasture, being, you know, withdrawing into seclusion, became how we thought of our elders. And and then you move toward the second half of the 20th century, which was a technology where technology takes over. And yes, we now have knowledge workers. And yes, we have new computer languages. And yes, digital natives are more and more prized. And the older you are, the less you are a digital native. And it doesn't mean that you can't be a really proficient IT person in your 60s. You can. You know, the people who built the internet were boomers. Mm. But bottom line is there was a growing sense of obsolescence was happening faster. And obsolescence in a technology era was happening faster. Therefore, obsolescence of your historical knowledge may be less worthy. And it just accelerated this idea that retirement was the place to go earlier and earlier and earlier. And and we hit our bottom as a a U.S. society around year 2000. 
when the average retirement age moved into the 50s, late, late 50s. Um, and since then, it's actually been moving up for you know every year. And it's partly by choice and necessity. If we're living longer, people need to work longer. But also there's a lot of people who know, like that see the stats that retirement actually accelerates your mortality rate by two years, yeah. partly because you become irrelevant. So I'm I, I, sorry that I went on so long. But I think it's an important point. And last week I had, I don't know if you've heard of this this book, but I, I had Richard Reeves on the show who just wrote a book called Of Boys and Men. And that entire book is... It's Man, mostly, I, I wrote a blog post about that book. Oh, yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, no, I want to go ahead. Well, the what I was going to say about it, you know, it, the, the book is pretty much exclusively about men and how men are falling behind, but that it is the obsolescence, it's the irrelevance that seems to be at the heart of many of the problems for you know men specifically in the modern world. They don't really seem to often feel like they have a place. And this is not just unique to retired older men. It's also, you know, young men who are getting booted out of the workforce because of automation and are getting their butts kicked in in school by women and and just are not you know feeling like they they particularly have a place in the culture in general i i didn't know that you had written a blog post about the book i'd love to get your thoughts on uh, on it and how it might relate to the work you're doing well i think the stats are staggering i mean the book is the book is um uh you know some people don't like the book because of some of the conclusions he's come to in terms of they think it, they think it's sort of like blaming women or something like that, and I, I don't I don't see I don't think that women are the fault at fault here. Yeah, um, I think society has some fault in terms of what how we have treated boys and turned them into warriors at a young age and uh, not social socialized them into understanding how to address their emotions. Um, I mean, my book, Emotional Equations, which is the book I wrote before Wisdom at Work, became a New York Times bestseller because 80% of people who were buying it were men because yeah. it was it was, it was was a book that took emotions and turned them into equations. And men liked that um, because it was, <laughs> okay, I now have a way to understand my emotions that's really logical. Um, so long story short is I, I think that um, what's scary is how many men give up and I think this has been true for decades when men hit their fifties. Mm -hmm. I, I think I actually think women, and there's some great Harvard business review um, studies on this. Women sort of sometimes in their, in their career, find their stride in their forties and their fifties. Uh, men, on the other hand, they're, they sort of like they hit their apex and they're on the downslide. And there's a lot of reasons for that. What's scary about the book and some of the premises in the book is like, man, it's almost like it, you have your apex at age 10 or, or 14 or something like that. And and then it's all downhill. And it's uh I, I think that the it's an it's a it's a it's a an epi, it's epidemic proportions at this point, I would say, that it needs to be solved. And without solving it, we I think we have a continuing device of us and a polarized us because actually when you feel irrelevant you feel disaffected when you feel disaffected you're likely to believe in conspiracies and and go in a direction that sort of feels like the world is out to get you and and 
and it, it, I'm not, you know, this, I'm not meaning to get political here because I don't really want to sort of take a side on, you know, Republican versus Democratic. But I, what I want to say is that more, it is not healthy for a society to have a group of people, whatever, whether it's due to the color of the skin or sexual orientation, their gender, feeling irrelevant. And I think it, it what has let what has made this more acute is that for many of the other if it's women or gay people or uh, black people, there was a history of them being the other and not having power mm. as they've come more into their own. Um, there's an element for men. They're falling from high. They're falling from a, an apex place. And therefore the slide feels more significant and their ability to process that slide is even more problematic mm. because especially white men, straight white men are the most bottled up in their emotions. And, and that, I mean, I don't have, I don't have data on this one though. I have a lot of data on this stuff, but I don't have data on this one, but I would believe it partly because when you look at the suicide uh, statistics, it is, you know, very much midlife. I mean, it's gone up everywhere, but midlife uh, men, white men has gone up the most amongst midlifers who are committing suicide. Yeah. I know Richard makes this note um, close to the beginning of the book that like men make up something like three out of every four deaths of despair. And I I don't know if he goes into the specifics of the age range of that, but you know, 75% of the people who are dying from overdoses and suicide are, are men currently in the U S and, you know, I'd love to maybe pivot from this to the modern elder Academy and what the goal of it is it was astonishing to me in getting more familiar with the work of the academy that it doesn't seem like anything like this exists elsewhere in the world which is kind of amazing um i know it started in 2018 if i remember correctly but the general gist of the you know the inspiration for you for why you wanted to do it what's what are the primary goals of the the academy well, let me, yeah, let me go. I mean, a beautiful bridge. I don't know if you knew this bridge, but part of the reason I started the Academy is because I lost five male friends to suicide yeah. during the during the Great Recession, um, uh, all of them between age 42 and 52, uh, three of them entrepreneurs um, whose sense of self-esteem and worth was completely tied to their companies. Their companies were going out of business during the Great Recession, and they didn't know how to detach themselves identity wise from, from this business, from a business that was failing. Yeah. So long story short is um, I had two experiences of midlife, one terrible, one beautiful. The terrible experience was that period when I didn't want to be running this boutique hotel company anymore. My partner, my long-term partner was leaving me. My African-American foster son was going to jail or prison wrongfully. Um, and I was I was having friends passing away. I was running out of money to run my company. And man, everything was going wrong. <laughs> Just like yeah. everything was wrong. Then I had my flatline experience, which is due to an allergic reaction to an antibiotic. And I woke up and I was like, okay, midlife sucks. Now I understand what a midlife crisis is. And, and I got to the other side of it. And I was like, okay, note to self. <laughs> I got to really study midlife at some point because I think this is a tough period. Now, little did I know at that time, there was going to be social science research coming out soon after that showing the U-curve of happiness and that 47.2 is the low point of happiness across almost all cultures. Um, 
And so 45 to 50 is the rough period. And there's a lot of reasons for that. We could dive into them if you want, but, uh, and I was like, wow, that was my, that was my experience. That's for sure. So let's now move on. And I moved on to like having amazing midlife in my fifties with Airbnb and seeing relevance and feeling my wisdom. So at the end of my stint of full-time work at Airbnb, I took a step back, came down here to Baja where I had a home on the beach. And I said, man, midlife is really interesting. Midlife, you know, it can be really bad. It can be really good. Um, They called me a modern elder wisdom is starting to you know ferment in me i got to write a book about this so while i was writing the book here in baja about an hour north of cabo san lucas uh for those who know southern baja i had this epiphany one day running on the beach i had a baja aha mm-hmm. and my baja aha was why don't we have midlife wisdom schools um we have you know middle essence is a is a term that's not well known in the pop culture ma- mainstream but its sociologists have been using it for 20 years to describe this middle of life when you're going through hormonal like think think uh for women menopause for men andropause um you're going through hormonal physical emotional and identity transitions and similar to adolescence you're going through all those transitions as well and so what came about was this idea like, well, why don't we have a school? We have prep schools for adulthood and college. What if we were to have prep schools for elderhood, which in elderhood, it could last 30 or 40 years. It's a term that defines that you're older than the people around you. So that's really how um, uh, MEA came about. We have now 3,000 alums from 40 countries and 26 regional chapters around the world. And the real pillars of our program is definitely wisdom. But the four uh, curriculum pillars that are based upon social science are how do you reframe aging, your your relationship with aging? How do you shift from a fixed to a growth mindset based upon Carol Dweck's work at Stanford? Um, How do you navigate midlife transitions? And how do you um, embrace and uh, and empower a regenerative lifestyle when it comes to your purpose, but also when it comes to the planet? And we have created regenerative residential communities built around farms, regenerative farms or ranches in in Baja, as well as now in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So that's what we're doing. And I want to get into, for for people that, hear about this right i mean for me it was a bit of an aha moment of of you know even learning that in a something like an academy to try to encourage the status and the direction and the purpose of elder of elders in our society to you know go through some of these transitions and just stay healthy and relevant and you know, I was thinking about this too. A, a couple of years ago, I started a mentorship program at my at my high school in trying to connect people who are roughly my age and their you know mid to late thirties with teenagers who are interested in business or law or podcasting or whatever, and uh, a- attempting to make those connections earlier because I was imagining how much I would have, I think, benefited from the knowledge and the wisdom of people who are older than me. And it was a small attempt to try to you know, help provide some of that, you know, compassion and that that wisdom to the younger generation. I, I know just you just said this that you know, so much of retirement seems to be putting out old people to pasture, waiting for them to die, 
and these are often people and you know my my parents are on the cusp of of retiring my my dad is still working but my mom recently retired and these are people who have raised children who have run businesses and you can multiply that by the millions in in um in America and i think so many people are just full of um you know good advice and stories and knowledge and wisdom that they can pass along to younger people but i know you must know the data on just the loneliness um that so many people seem to be experiencing now with um you know the rise of so many of the distractive technologies and other factors that are happening in in the country i i have to imagine you have thought a, a good deal about this you know i think the academy is amazing how do we get you know just ordinary people right like I, I was thinking about whether a grassroots widespread um you know, you know program in which there were like leaders in individual cities who were helping to facilitate these elders getting connected to high school kids or to people who are just entering the working world you know on a on a larger scale how do you think about you know some things that might be able to be done to leverage what seems like an incredible untapped resource and a need for people to stay relevant with you know younger individuals who could really benefit from the wisdom of of these these people have you given some thought to you know how how this might be applicable on like a on a, a, a wider scale outside of the academy which i have a ton of respect for and would love to go to honestly at some point yeah, no, I mean, well, a couple of thoughts, both in the academy and then let's talk beyond it. So uh, 15% of our alumni of the academy are millennials. Yeah. So who knew that millennials would be coming to MEA uh, because, you know, elder would seem to suggest a millennial wouldn't be an elder, but in, you just described an elder situation with yourself and high school students. So learning how to build those wisdom skills are important at any at any age. So um, we've also now created something called Generations Over Dinner, uh, and it just just got launched. And it's the idea of like, how do we encourage three, four, five generations coming together at the dinner table to actually go through some life-changing conversations based upon curated topics that we've developed? Um, and we did this with Michael Hebb, who started Death Over Dinner. Over a million people did a Death Over Dinner experience. And now Generations Over Dinner just got launched. And you can look, you can, people can find it at generationsoverdinner.com. Um, absolutely. Take a look at what Cogenerate's doing. Cogenerate is a company or an organization that used to be called Encore.org. So Encore.org was started by Mark Friedman. Beautiful premise, which was like, hey, we have lots of people going into their 50s and they're retiring. They have all these skills. How could we have them move away from the sort of ego-fed career path to be purpose-minded, providing support in not often nonprofits or social enterprises. Um, and so it was a great idea. But over time, Mark saw, you know, 20 years in, into running Encore.org, that we were desperately in need of intergenerational collaboration. So they recently changed their name uh, from Encore.org to Cogenerate. And the whole premise is about cogeneration. So, highly recommend your listeners uh, check that out if, that, if that's interesting to you, because they have all kinds of ways people can participate. I, I think we're seeing many more programs that are showing how do we how do we create more age diversity um, in all kinds of ways. You know, how do we how how do we take 
how do you put how do you cite a a, a preschool or a childcare center next to a senior center <laughs> because yeah. there's a just synergy there there's a real opportunity there um and there's history that shows that you know the, the value of especially grandmothers in society um what their role has been so long story short is i, I think we're on the on the precipice of something here and um but let's also recognize one last thing that i want to say wisdom does not the physics of wisdom has historically flown down uh flowed downhill old to young yeah i think the physics of wisdom has have changed and the when i was at, at airbnb i had over 100 mentees but i would say 50 to 75 of those 100 it was a mutual mentorship relationship typically i was offering eq emotional intelligence and they were offering me dq digital intelligence and yeah, you could say, okay, well, that's knowledge, not wisdom. But you know, I think there's the listen, not knowledge mixed with your personal experience can be wisdom for sure. Mm. So I, I think there's a real opportunity for us in organizations to create more mentor matching um, and where it's mutual mentorship, where the older person wants to learn this but knows that, and the younger person wants to learn the what the older person knows, but actually can teach them something. And wouldn't that be fascinating if that's the future of learning and development in organizations around the world? Yeah. You know, this is another, you know, aspect of, you know, in just in doing research for this conversation that I, I gleaned from some of your conversations, which is your, you know, seemingly your interest in Carl Jung. And is it also an, very much an interest of mine? I've said this before on the show that one of my favorite podcast interviews I've, I've ever done is with Jim Hollis, who's one of the most eloquent, prolific writers of, of Jungian thought. And it, it reminded me in hearing your story, and I think you were mentioning this right around the time you had your flatline moment, that of a, I think it's a Joseph Campbell line that you, know, you can spend your life climbing a ladder only to realize you've leaned it against the wrong wall. And that, to me, this is one of the most crucial pieces of wisdom that young people especially can potentially really save a lot of time and heartbreak and and misery contemplating before they you know commit to 10-year endeavors 20-year endeavors grad school that are leading them towards a profession and a lifestyle that really do, don't resonate with them and i guess maybe if we could just talk about your reflections on that because I have to imagine, like so many successful people from the outside, when you were in your early 50s and people saw your life and what you had accomplished and where you had graduated from school, most people must have thought, this man is the definition of success. And you mentioned this, that you, know, you had friends that during the Great Recession had committed suicide. One of them I know was named Chip. And it yeah. was in, it, it must, and that you also, if I remember correctly from these conversations, you were living in San Francisco and the thought of jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge had crossed your mind. Yep. Um, what have you learned from you know, that trajectory of your life, which did lead you to some fame and some wealth and some respect inevitably um, in the Bay Area and in the country, but internally, it seemed like, and it's not just because of work, but it's, you know, 
that can have a huge effect on the kind of person you're becoming and the kind of stress that you're carrying. What have you learned? What, 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 if you were talking to a young person who was a young chip, who was just graduating from business school or just graduating from college and was beginning their professional journey, what would you say to them given, given your own experience that led you to, you know, what seems like external esteem, but internal revolution or depression or just not a, a calm state um i'd love to get, yeah. get your thoughts on that <laughs> that was that was a lot there yeah. um so let, let me try to uh focus on a few of those things um number one is i will say that i i made a conscious decision coming out of in my second year of business school i had come out the summer before i was second year business school, Morgan Stanley wanted me back. A lot of companies wanted me back or wanted me to join them. And I went to work for a job for $2,000 a month, $24,000 a year mm-hmm. out of Stanford Business School in 1984 um, when I had offers for $100,000 a year. And I, and then I decided to start a company called Joie de Vivre, Joy of Life. That's the mission of our company. So I will say that from um, while I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur and I wanted to do something on my own and I wanted to, I loved boutique hotels when I started to get to know them and I really took an unusual path. Mm. So I I'm proud of myself in terms of some of the choices I made that were very personal, not, not mainstream. And I I remember going to my, my business school reunion, maybe 10 years after graduating and just seeing how many people admired me, even though I was the youngest person in the class, second youngest person was Seth Godin, Mm -hmm. my, my partner in crime during business school. And, um, I think what I really felt was like they were in their, they were not necessarily in a midlife crisis yet, but they could feel how much they had sort of sold out and then the McKinsey or Morgan Stanley or, you know, whatever it was, hmm. the job that is sort of expected. And so where I think I struggled was not that. Where I struggled was this element of like, okay, I was attaching too much of my sense of self-esteem to my work. Mm. I loved, I went on a different path. And yet my sense of definition of myself, my identity was based upon being the founder and CEO of this, you know, fast growing company that got a lot of press and et cetera. And it was a, you know, cultural role model for a lot of other companies. And so I think what, what I at some point when I was about 22 years into it and not realizing I wasn't enjoying anymore. And we had 3,500 employees. And I realized that what I, what the way I started the company was based upon creativity and freedom. And I really, that's what I was seeking. Mm. And at age 47, I wasn't feeling much creativity or freedom anymore. Mm. And so there was that. <clears throat> then there was also this uh, recognition that to speak to Carl Jung, um, who, who believed that, you can't live the afternoon of one's life based upon the rules of the morning. And he said a couple of key things as did Richard Rohr, a famous Christian mystic who's still living, who is actually came to MEA as a student. Amazingly. Um, What they both said was that, you know, the primary operating system for the first half of your adult life is your ego. And for your second half of your adult life, it's your soul. And it is around midlife that you are making this primary operating system change. And usually because of a bunch of circumstances in your life, they're sort of fucked up. Excuse me, my language. Mm. Um, and I think that that was really a, a revelation for me to realize, man, 
I'm so tired of my ego. I'm so tired of being led by my ego. I'm so tired of having that be the operating principle for how I operate in my life that, yeah, it ha- I, you know, no one taught me how to do this operating system change, but I, I, I did do it. And, and what Airbnb afforded me was the opportunity to right size my ego because all of a sudden I went from being the CEO and, you know, the marquee head, you know, headliner in the company to being the, you know, not the sage on the stage, but the guide on the side Mm. who was helping the founders, you know, steer their rocket ship, but I wasn't getting a lot of attention for it. So that required in the first year, some real shifting in me. Another thing that, you know, Carl Jung said was the idea of, you know, the first half of your life is about accumulation and the second half of your life is about editing. Totally believe it. And Mm. there's a point around midlife where you start to realize I need to like get rid of the baggage that isn't serving me anymore. The mindsets, the identities, the responsibilities, frankly, sometimes the people in my life. And, um, and that was another thing I did. So I would just say my definition of success changed in the sense that it wasn't so ego driven. <clears throat> Interestingly, I'd spent a, 24 years running this company any money I was making, I put back into the company. So it was like, and then I sold the company for like a fraction of what it was worth because I just wanted to get out of it. Mm. So in some ways people are looking at me like, what an idiot. Um, but I, kept, I, hold, I held on to the real estate. I didn't sell the real estate of the hotels. I sold the management company and the operate, operating business. And so the real estate came back in a huge way in, you know, after the Great Recession. And I made a fortune at Airbnb. So I didn't, when I gave up trying to make money, for the sake of like, and I just sort of gave up on like thinking of money as a metric for success. It just landed in my lap in all mm. kinds of ways. And then I've used that, uh, that currency, that money to, you know, focus not on ROI return on investment, but instead of ripples of impact and the ripples of impact of MEA as a, a social impact, social entrepreneur organization, uh, social enterprise, um, where I don't pay myself and I've funded everything and I love it. And over half our people who come are on some form of financial aid. So we have socioeconomic diversity. I feel more successful Mm. than ever, but it is my soul that feels that sense of fulfillment. Mm. And my reading of Jung is that that is almost an inevitable sequence that you need that ego development right to be able to navigate as an individual in the world so that and i i so identify with this as well that you know when you're young and ambitious and hungry and maybe have a chip on your shoulder uh and you want some respect that you will you'll you'll inevitably have your ego driving a lot of your decisions and then you get to a certain point where that no longer is serving you and there's a, a a switch over to you know giving yourself different types of nutrients maybe that that um you hadn't been feeding yourself for a long time that are just much more wholesome and nourishing i know we're getting towards the end of the conversation and i i, w- I want to spend some time um at the end here talking about the regenerative communities and 
this to me, it, it seems quite new. What you know, your your work in this, and that I, I know I've, I've heard you say this on other uh, podcast interviews that you know, another area of disruption that you see as being ripe for change is the um, you know old old folks' homes and the retirement community. Retirement communities, communities. senior yeah. living, yeah, senior living, and that I don't know anyone who is not yet in a situation like that who is looking forward to being <laughs> basically put in a prison for old people waiting to die. Um, so I, I just want to give you an opportunity to kind of introduce the idea of what you're trying to do and how you yeah. think this might make people's lives better and, and change the the culture in general. Well, let's look at the two words, retirement versus regeneration. So retirement, technically, the etymology of it means to withdraw into seclusion. The way we look at it as going out to pasture, we do an age apartheid, meaning we separate <laughs> separate the old people from everybody else and put them in a place where they feel like they're not old because everybody's old. And um, and yeah, there's all kinds of firms. There's luxury versions of that. There's middle-class versions of that. And then there's nursing homes, which mm. are, you know, pretty, pretty scary places, um, especially during COVID. And so long story short is our way of warehousing people later in life and, and segregating them is it's just sort of inhumane, um, to society and to them. And some people, like my parents love being in the retirement community they're in. So they're, they're fine with it. And there are going to be people who are going to still want to be in a retirement community, but it's, it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm. Um, because there's the, because they haven't really figured out how to make them intergenerational, etc. So the word re regeneration comes from the idea of to actually um, rebirth something, uh, and to and it's often thought of in the context of agriculture and land. Regenerative agriculture is about rebuilding and regenerating the soil, so that monocropping and things like that you know, deaden the soil, how do you bring it back? And it's, and it's a huge part of, you know, climate change theory that like regenerating the, the soil of the planet has a huge impact on um, sequestering carbon, et cetera. Long story short is what if you created a regenerative community where there's a regenerative farm or a ranch? Um, so you're sort of getting back to the soil and you live there with a collection of other people who you know, so such that you have potlucks once a week and you may go out and hang out in the farm and harvest there. And you have your own gardens that you're actually you have herbs in your gardens. And the community is based upon four pillars of regeneration, regenerating the soil, regenerating your soul through programs that we offer there, um, regenerating the community such that you know everybody in your community, but also the locale. You're actually investing in the locale. Um, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have like a co-working a free co-working space for younger entrepreneurs at this generative community so that you have this weird, interesting mentorship thing going on there. And then finally, regenerating purpose. So to regenerate one's purpose is, I think, one of the most important things that helps create a long, happy life, uh, a long, happy, healthy life. And so all these forms of regeneration are built into our program. And, um, our first regenerative community is right near the campus here in Baja, 26 homes around a, a farm sold out overnight without even any plans, all just from alumni. And now we are looking at uh, two regenerative communities in uh, the Santa Fe, New Mexico area, as well as two 
quite large academies. So, yeah. yeah. I know um, you've spoken to this too, that you know, as religion has sort of receded in its influence in the culture and the, you know, the meaning that it had once provided to, you know, tens of millions of Americans that in my mind, there is a gaping hole for a need that people have um, to, to fill some of that, to bring some of the meaning back into their life. And that in my mind, that has some, has already had some positive effects where people get uh, deeply embedded into their, you know, yoga communities or their TED talks, but also, you know, t- from my lights, it seems like a lot of the tribalism and politics has really taken over some of that space as well, where people are identifying with their political tribe in a way that's kind of linked with the fervor that used to be associated with their religiosity. You know, maybe we can close on this of what you would view. Right, Th- this is a. This is a long-term project, and it's not going to happen overnight. But if if this if, if you're able to have the kind of effect that you would like to, and in, in, along with your coworkers and the people who work uh, work for you, how do you think the how do you think America would change if we, you know, heeded to some of the advice of our elders, if we respected and nurtured our you know, our, our elders in a way that we don't right now, how do you envision the country would be different? What, what kind of a civilization shift might occur if, um, if, if you're able to have the effect that, that, um, that you might like to have? Yeah. I think the effect I want to have is not so much respecting, revering the elders, nor giving elders more power. Like look at Washington, DC, full <laughs> of damn elders. Um, on both sides of the aisle, but especially on the Democrats. I mean, I'm, I'm a Democrat, but I like, yeah, like look at our leadership. Um, so I don't, I don't know that, that, that my solution here for society is more power to the elders. I do think it's more um, connection throughout mm. society. How do we create a new generational compact such that we across various generational divides look for the commonality of purpose that and and with unique alternative ways of looking at something based upon often based upon your age and how do we solve these problems together and that that to me is the real opportunity and then that's sort of societally and and from a from a yeah a political socio-political perspective and cultural perspective but then in companies too like mm-hmm. you know yeah uber travis got kicked you know thrown out Elizabeth Holmes got thrown out of Theranos. Uh, Adam Newman got thrown out of of WeWork. All three of them could have used a modern elder by their side. Um, Or at least if they had one, could have listened to that modern elder a little bit more. Not because the modern elder had all the answers, maybe because that modern elder had lots of good questions. Hmm. And and to me, a, a modern elder who's doing their job is this beautiful alchemy of curiosity and wisdom. And sometimes it's the curiosity of asking questions that help Adam Newman see his blind spot. And mm. damn, he had a big one, a big blind spot. And it wouldn't it have been nice if there had been someone with Adam. And I mean, I was lucky enough with Brian Chesky um, that he did, he had some blind spots, but you know, he, he's the CEO, CEO of Airbnb. And for seven and a half years, I was his primary in-house mentor. Um, but, you know, thank God that he wanted that mentorship. 
Mm-hmm. And thank God I learned from him as well, because he is now the CEO of the most valuable hospitality company in the world. And if you told me that 10 years ago, when I first started working with him and the company, I would have said like, I don't even know if I should like spend time on this. I don't know if this business is going to work. And Brian has a lot of hubris. Where's the humility? But he had the humility to be comfortable enough and confident enough to have me by his side as a longtime CEO of a hospitality company who wasn't trying to take his job. Yeah. And, and it worked. It worked. And I think that model can work over and over again. Fair enough. Chip, I know it's your birthday. Um, and I want to just say thank you for giving me the time, especially on a, on a day like today. Uh, I love what you're doing. I love your work. Uh, it's, it's a real honor to be able to do this, man. Thanks so much for, for the time. Thank you, Dan. I, you know, thanks to your community for being interested in this topic. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible.